Welcome to this week's edition of COINTELPRO. We wanted to update you on the projects we have in the works right now. This weekend, Austin is attending the Ozark Mountain UFO Conference in Eureka Springs. John B. Alexander and former guest of the show David Marler are its keynote speakers. We'll have dispatches from that conference in the coming weeks. I am in the process of publishing my second story with Protos about human rights organizations and Bitcoin. Look for more discussion of that piece to hit your feed soon. We're also conducting interviews for a series about how historical events have been manipulated or obfuscated to drive Americans' opinions on war. We hope to begin releasing that series by the end of the month. Now, on with the show. The irony for those here and elsewhere is that almost everything that they take for granted has its roots in liberalism. Liberalism is the engine of change and betterment. Liberalism brought us a middle class, voting, a five-day work week, the Bill of Rights, even our country, which has a liberal endeavor. So that's like the most upvoted comment on like the New York Times comment section on Klein's article here. It's 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 weird to me because like in my head. And this is probably wrong for me to do, but like I, I sort of conjoin like neoliberalism and 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 liberalism. Like when when I think of like liberalism in the modern context, you know, I I it for me is the liberal order, the neoliberal global order that we all kind of sort of all sort of you know fall under um, in a global society in the grand scheme of things. Um, so it, it makes me feel weird about it. We're talking today about Ezra Klein's piece for the New York Times that came out this Sunday called The Enemies of Liberalism are showing us what it really means. Um, And throughout, Klein is dialoguing with a book by Matthew Rose called A World After Liberalism. Rose is a scholar of modern religion and the American right. Um, This book that Klein is dialoguing with is from 2012 from the Yale University Press. And what Austin is touching on there and what I think is a good place to sort of start is, you know, to consider like what we mean when we think of kind of a a capital L liberalism, right? And this is something that we have touched on on the show in general. Liberalism in the sense that we're using it right now, or especially in the sense that Klein is using it in this piece, is to sort of describe everything that's post-monarchism, essentially. And that's to acknowledge that the original conservatism, the ideological roots of conservatism are, are monarchist, right? And that, in fact, when we talk about liberals and conservatives in our modern parlance, what we're really talking about are just two different groups of liberals, okay? So for me, when we're evaluating liberalism like on this scale, right? We're really talking about, um, and this is something that Klein is reluctant to do and that we'll get into as we discuss this piece. There is a reluctance to acknowledge that what we're really talking about here are the capitalists, okay? To the extent that there's anything really coherent 
about uh, liberalism with a capital L. It's the belief that a group of people selected from the population have the right to possess property and political power. Okay. That's in its very simplest terms. The, that is what liberalism is. Now we we've seen across history, how narrowly and broadly defined that group of people can be right. Um, but when we're thinking of liberalism, we're really just thinking of, of anybody who doesn't think that someone has a divine right to lead. And so I think it's worthwhile that you bring up the, sort of troublesome attitudes of people on the American right towards mm-hmm. you know, Donald Trump and that, that these dudes seem to be things and ideologies that do sort of prescribe maybe something divine, something uh-huh. beyond the secular to, uh, you know, to Donald Trump, maybe. What we need to sort of center in our analysis of Klein's article here is this idea that the The people on the radical right that Matthew Rose is talking about in a world after liberalism are people who are actually not liberals. And I don't mean that in in the way that like Mitch McConnell isn't a liberal, right? I mean that in like the way that uh, Edmund Burke wasn't a liberal, right? We're talking about people who who essentially believe that uh, liberal governance rights claims, uh, even capitalism to an extent, although we'll see how that idea is under construction, um, were, were a mistake, right? That, uh, in fact, this decadent liberalism is what's responsible for the decline of the West. That's the argument that we're having to engage with here, right? And distinguish ourselves from as people who uh, might agree with Oswald Spengler in in terms of the broader trajectory of Western civilization. Um, so that's that's what we're going to endeavor to do here today. Um, I also just want to push back uh, before we jump in against kind of this conflation that Klein is engaged with throughout this this piece between like the West and liberalism. Um, I think that like. Like it's kind of a, a problematic conflation. And the reason it's being made here is because this is ultimately like a pro-war propaganda piece, right? Um, that's meant to give cover to sort of like reasonable people on the center left uh, who want to bang the war gong, right? And so so there's going to be a lot in here where we, where we want to sort of point out when Klein is using liberalism um, as this sort of fulcrum for motivating people who might not otherwise be motivated to support the coming conflict. Klein writes, That liberalism has been battered by financial crises, the climate crisis, checkered pandemic responses, right-wing populists in a rising China. It seems exhausted, ground down, defined by the contradictions and broken promises that follow victory rather than the creativity and aspiration that attend struggle. At least it did. Ukraine's refusal to bend the knee to Vladimir Putin has reminded the West that, for those who have not yet learned to take it for granted, life under liberalism is worth fighting for. So right off the bat, right, we see that there's this conflation between liberalism and the West, right, Uh, which, uh, which is fraught. It's an oversimplification of politics and motives, 
particularly in Ukraine. And it, and it is propaganda, right? Especially when we're conflating anti-Russian and pro-Western Ukrainians with notions of liberalism, right? I mean, there's been a lot of reluctance to speak honestly about the Ukrainian right and Ukrainian nationalists mm-hmm. and, you know, who their grandparents were and what they did and whether or not they would meet any you know, standard definition for liberalism. I mean, if Nazism is liberalism, um, which I, I am willing to hear that argument, I think it, it finds its roots coherently in liberalism, then fine, right? But I think that uh, that's not what Ezra Klein means when he's talking about liberalism, right? Ezra Klein isn't uh, coherently pointing out here that the origins of Nazism uh, are like German liberal imperialism and that the anti-Russian pro-Western Ukrainians are liberals because their grandparents were fascists, right? I mean, I think you could say that, but but that's not what Klein is saying. Here's the problem, though, is that like we can sit here and like sort out these different terms, you know, based on how we might know them. But but for any person just listening, every single term that we are mentioning right now has been just so, um, I don't know, like just definitions have, have changed radically as, as culture has changed over time and whatnot. And the liberalism that you were talking about in sort of reference to like, you know, Nazism possibly having roots in that sort of thing, that right there, that liberalism you're referring to is like you said, radically different than the one that, that, that Klein is talking about, but a lot of people don't know that. And so, and so you can use it, you you can corral these ideas the way Klein has, which is with easy conflations and oversimplifications of liberalism to equal something intrinsically of the West. Because I, I agree with you, like the, like the what's being capitalized on here is the abuse. None of us really are doing a good job explaining, you know, these terms as we just sort of loosely throw them around and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You can make the same argument on the right. Um, you know, people for years in America have called themselves libertarians. You know, the American right has hijacked that term. And now everywhere you see don't tread on me flags, you know, flying down the road on some Dodge Ram, you know, pickup truck on I-30. Like, it's just libertarianism comes from leftist anarchism historically. And then it's just, a, it's a term that now is conflated entirely with, you know, right wing sort of um, anarcho-capitalist thought. But if you were just, just to go up to the majority of people on the street, somewhere in the Midwest, for example, and you would ask them what libertarianism is, you know, they would give you the hijacked definition, not, you know, what, what, something about Ron Paul. Yeah. Or something about Ron Paul, you know, or or Rand for that matter. But like, yeah, very few people would be able to give you sort of like the historical, um, sort of, sort of a through line on that. And I'm not like trying to, I'm not trying to be elitist when I say that. I'm just, I'm just sort of trying to point out that all of these terms have just changed and changed and changed. And we just kind of all, all of us on on the left and right throw these terms around so loosely without like really properly defining them with historical context. They deserve to be demystified though, because these aren't, aren't actually incredibly complicated 
things, right? Uh, no, they not. are they're only confused by people's exposure to political rhetoric. There are sort of like coherent ideological and epistemological roots to, you know, to these terms. It's like you bring up neoliberalism and uh, neoliberalism has its its opposite in neoconservatism, right? Both of which are are just a sort of a, a Cold War era split among like liberalism, right? You, you have this failure of classical economics and classical liberalism um, to reconcile the differences between nation states in Europe, or even just to respond to the great capitalist crisis of, of, of the Great Depression, right? And so you have liberalism in crisis, uh, but, and then you get the Cold War, right, which refocuses liberalism um, into this sort of uh, post-Keynesian uh, framework, right? And, and it's over the disagreement about how to apply Keynesian economics that you get modern conceptions of neoliberalism and neoconservatism, right? And these things are confused even further by the fact that, you know, neoliberals and neoconservatives uh, have have basically been in, in both political parties, or at least to say maybe a little bit more accurately, neoliberals have been in both American political parties, right? And so once again, you have, you have actual, you know, ideological framework here confused by the application of those frameworks in political rhetoric. And I, and, and the thing is, is I, like, I agree with, with like your, your point here, but I, I think, but I pretty firmly believe that it is within the grasp of perfectly normal people to, mm-hmm. you know, to, to have these understandings basically. Right. right? right. I, 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 and so that, so, so for me, it's like, I'm not, I don't fear being considered elitist on this fact because I genuinely believe that this is, this is something that basically everyone can understand mm-hmm. were it not for the sort of willful manipulation of, of, of people's understandings of these terms by our uh, yeah. political yeah. organs. Yeah. Well, I, I guess what I'm sort of getting at, maybe like in our case, for example, we've, we've used these terms um, a lot on the show and for anyone just, you know, listening who isn't necessarily well-versed in a lot of this stuff, they might come in and be like thinking of these terms, you know, in with entirely different definitions in their head, basically. And, you know, we haven't like, done an episode on like going through and explaining, you know, the nuance of all these terms and historical through lines and stuff like that for how the, you know, the, def- the definitions of these terms have progressed over time. Well, I think this will be a good opportunity for us to try to do that. Yeah. And, and that's, I'm not saying that that's, that's, that's on, on us for not having necessarily done that. Um, but I think what's interesting and the point that I kind of wanted to make here is like, as we, look at the term liberalism and what it means and you know the the sort of large one of the large umbrella themes that we are kind of trying to tackle over the course of this project as we continue to do it is you know the prospect of decline basically decline and collapse and when we use those terms decline and collapse we are primarily, I guess sort of when I think about those terms within the context of the show, I'm thinking about when the path 
to those things started. And it's like, well, does it start with like the beginning of industrialization basically from there? And if that's the case, then like, yeah, from, you know, the definition of liberalism that we're using, that definition is what lays the groundwork for decline and collapse, you know, for 300 years. By dialoguing with these anti-liberal radical right ideologies um, alongside Klein here, I think we can start to sort of drill down, not just on the meanings of these terms, but on kind of why they end up so ideologically confused, right? So, so Klein is endeavoring in this article, again, from the New York Times called The Enemies of Liberalism are showing us what it really means. He's endeavoring to describe the right-wing ideology of 20th century philosophers um, from Matthew Rose's book. We're thinking of people like Oswald Spengler and Samuel Francis, who live downstream of Nietzschean ideas about the cultural inferiority of like the liberal and the Christian West. Okay, For those of you who uh, may not know a whole lot about Friedrich Nietzsche, right? Um, and and maybe confused at the construction of a cultural inferiority out of like liberalism and Christianity, um, we can just sort of very kind of quickly describe, you know, these ideas. Uh, Nietzsche wrote a book called uh, Resentiment, right, which is French, but it would is a cognate for resentment. And in this book, Resentment, Nietzsche basically makes the argument that like the values of antiquity right of and or at least of the cultures that are visible to us in history in antiquity are not the values of christianity right that the values of you know the the persians and the romans and uh you know these these the 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 assyrians right these great empires of the past is about strength and domination and the strong overpowering the weak, and that being divinely ordained. And they all had religions, which kind of basically uh, supported that conception of things. But Christianity, coming out of like the, the, the Jewish tradition, is identified by Nietzsche, who's an anti-Semite, as being a religion of the weak, Right. A, a religion and an ideology of a conquered people, right? And I mean, you, you can see it quite literally, at a, a, a significant departure between uh, this idea of the strong dominating the weak that you might sort of easily conclude as a part of like uh, a, a Roman's ideology of the world um, with the literal statement in the Judeo-Christian faith that, you know, the, the meek will inherit the earth, right? The sort of loving of, of all things that are, that are, you know, all creatures great and large and, and, and small. And, and, and that this sort of framework, right. Is used by these right-wing thinkers to explain why like the West is uh, deteriorating in their view and why the divine order of, of antiquity has been broken down by liberalism. So Klein continues, the argument of anti-liberals goes something like this. Our truest identities are rooted rooted in the land in which we're born and the kin among whom we're raised. Our lives are given order and meaning because they are embedded in the larger structure and struggle of our people. 
liberalism, and to some degree, Christianity have poisoned our cultural soil, setting us adrift in a world that prizes pleasure and derides tradition. Multiculturalism in this telling becomes a conservative ideal. We should celebrate the strength in cultural difference, reject the hollow universalist pieties of liberals, and insist on the preservation of what sets people apart. I think this is kind of weird because I think that this is how like conservatives try to portray the importance of, of like racial and cultural difference, like in modernity. Okay. Like when we're getting that from Spengler and Francis and Nietzsche, right. We know it's white supremacy. We know what they mean when they think about like preserving the, uh, the cultural difference and everything. So to the extent that it's like a conservative ideal of multiculturalism, I think it's like, is, is, is a really strange reading of this. We, we know that, what we're talking about here, like historically among the radical right is like a justification for white supremacy. And like, I understand how the right wing today has sort of co-opted identity politics at this point. And like, that's confusing for some people, but there shouldn't even be a pretense of doubt what Oswald Spengler meant when he talked about the value of maintaining the differences between people in the West and outside of it. Furthermore. So while the radical right in the late 19th and early 20th century is like articulating this concept of uh, like, of like cultural inferiority of liberalism and Christianity. Um, It's worth pointing out that liberalism's like corrosive vectors on traditional life, like in Europe and in the colonies uh, were capitalism and nationalism. Like um, the, the bourgeoisie and landowners getting the right to vote in Republican elections really doesn't do much to like change the structure of society on its own. Okay. The, the peasants and slaves stay in the field and the bourgeoisie stay in their factories, but it's the penetration of the market and the reorientation of society around states and citizens. That's what unmoored people from traditionalism for which the right has been associated with throughout early industrialism. And so the right is going through this transformation in the late 19th and the early 20th centuries where it's having to legitimize itself after the end of feudalism and aristocracy, not as anti-capitalist anymore, but in fact, as more capitalist than liberals and social Democrats. And in doing so, they have been required to articulate and into liberalism that simultaneously embraces capitalism and blames other facets of society for degrading antiquity's perfect order. Okay. And I think the left is going through something right now. I think it's pretty clear that the premise of liberation, uh, you know, as derived from an industrialized working class has been largely disproven. And And we're having to sort of try to come up with other things, other vectors of our own liberation that can sort of like uh, gloss over that 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 failure. Okay, like you talked about, like when when do we start moving towards decline? When does that happen? And I think it certainly doesn't have. It certainly wasn't in like 1850. In fact, I think if you go back like 70 years or something, even to just the post-war moment, we might we could have picked another path towards a world that was less cruel, towards a world that consumed less of our finite. Uh, resources, but the the decline comes in every day that we chose to ignore the infinity of off ramps from decline, right? And and so I think that that like that is that is the crisis that the right found itself in that, and this is the crisis that the left finds itself in is of of, of sort of having been ideologically disproven um, and needing to sort of preserve all of your golden calves.
Weinigan continues, the anti-liberals rose profiles all believe that liberalism prescribed a life without sacrifice, an age when individual contentment reigned supreme and collective struggle disappeared. This was not true then, and it is not true now. What they missed is what liberalism actually believes, that there is a collective identity to be found in the collective betterment, that making the future more just than the past is a mission as grand as any offered by antiquity. I I do not understand how you can look at the wide construction of liberalism and say that everybody under that umbrella believes in collective betterment. They might all be said to believe in some sort of secular governance, but Klein has switched definitions of liberalism mid-essay here to try to make this point about collective betterment as a shared identity of uh, you know the West, or at least as a part of a grand mission that that holds it all together. That's the first reason that this is an astounding assertion. The, the second reason that this is so astounding: anyone who studies liberal political like liberal political systems from like a scientific standpoint, okay, basically concludes that our system is, of government is just competing self-interest groups duking it out for the control of institutions broad-based popular movements are actually its antithesis, okay? Collective betterment isn't even an important objective of the mainstream Democratic Party, at least not compared to what they see as their imperative to stay in power just to make sure things don't get any worse. That's not collective betterment, right? That's an ideology of like uh, collectively holding the line or something. Klein continues, but a critique they make thrums through our present and should be taken seriously. Liberalism needs a healthier relationship to time. Can the past become a foreign country without those who still live there being turned into foreigners in their own land? If the future is to be unmapped, then how do we persuade those who fear it, or mistrust us, to agree to venture into its wilds? I suspect another way of asking the same question is this. Can the constant confrontation with our failures and deficiencies produce a culture that is generous and forgiving? Can it be concerned with those who feel not just left behind, as many in America do, but left out, as so many Ukrainians were for so long? Here's the turn that liberals in any sense of the word have been making for so long. Go all the way back to uh, Samantha Power, right? And and everybody who was so sure 20 years ago that American military intervention was, you know, just – and usable as a means of like improving the human condition okay this is klein's attempt to reclaim that argument in 2022 right what what he's talking about here in this sort of like really veiled metaphor about the past becoming a foreign country or something and about how we shouldn't uh you know, we should ask whether or not our constant self-critique uh, and confrontation with our failures is that whether or not that's productive, whether or not it's holding us back. Right. All of this is meant to reassure us that um, we have what it takes to get the world into a conflict that will end in nuclear annihilation. The This is an attempt by Ezra Klein to create a liberal synthesis from his sort of reasoned, unthoughtful interrogation of right-wing social theory. Uh, He's saying that we need a a healthier relationship with time, 
meaning that we should start to see what Putin is doing in Ukraine as a historical analog, not just of like World War II, uh, but as though it were a literal new Thermopylae. And the Ukrainians are the 300 Spartans forming a, a shield with their own bodies to protect the West from a threatening right. and tyrannical Orientalism. Yeah. That's what Klein is attempting to sort of artfully construct for us here, is a new defense of Samantha Power, of a new defense of American interventionism uh, that that does not turn the, fa- the past into a foreign land that is not so preoccupied with our failures and deficiencies that we can cease to leave Americans behind and, you know, cease to leave the Ukrainians out. This is an independently produced podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at COINTELPROPOD and support more of our work on our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes and in our Twitter bio. We'll see you next week on COINTELPROPOD.